Altazimuth versus Equatorial Telescope mounts on episode 377 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, who's got a bit of a sore throat from staying up too late. And joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers of Looking Up at the Night Sky. And this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. I hope you have been out under the stars, Shane, and can tell me about it because I need to drink tea for a moment here. <laughs> I have been under the stars. Um, it's been a great week. The temperatures here have been quite warm for this time of the year. You know, uh, early evening, it's been in the positives, like plus two or three degrees Celsius, which has been super comfortable for, the, again, for kind of late fall, getting into early winter here soon. Um, and it's been clear. So everything sort of worked out. And I just, I, I absolutely love being able to eat my supper. Um, Me too. And when supper Dinner is, is great. Oh, more than so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to carry on with that. Yeah. <laughs> when, uh, when supper's complete put on my jacket, go outside and observe, uh, for a couple of hours, come back in and I still have time to, you know, do some other tasks if needed. It's just, uh, it's just great. So, um, in the last, I think six days, I've been out four times in the backyard and mostly double star observing. Uh, I did have some views of Jupiter and, uh, Saturn, um, seeing wasn't spectacular. So, you know, I really did not spend much time on either of those. Uh, I've been working on the RASC double star observing list that Blake Nancaro curated, and I knocked off 39 of those uh, this week, Chris. Uh, so pretty successful. Um, what can I say? So uh, I should also qualify. I've been mono viewing this week too. No bino viewer. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't like to use the bino viewer when it gets cold out. Um, I don't know. I think it's just me, but it, we, when you bring the gear back inside, you have that, you know, kind of risk of it heating up too fast and condensation building up. So I, I always drape a, a cold blanket over the gear when I bring it in. But I just don't want to mess around with the bino viewer. Plus, it's yet another piece of gear that has to acclimatize. So I just mono view in colder temperatures like these, and um, it's been it's been a lot of fun. the The Nexus digital setting circles are just such a game changer for this type of observing. Um, it's just so fast to find what you want to find. Um, you know, you don't have to try to star hop with stars you can't see because I'm in, you know, an urban setting with a lot of light pollution and, um, it, it it's faster than like a motorized telescope, you know, cause you just, you, you're moving it yourself so you can quickly get on a target and it makes for just a highly efficient observing session, which is how I've been able to, uh, knock off so many doubles in a, a four day period. Um, and I've been using exclusively the Zeiss telemeter, a uh, 63 millimeter acromat that we just talked a little bit about in the previous episode. And, um, you know, what's been kind of interesting about that too, is being at smaller aperture, some of these double stars don't jump out at you. There's been a number of them that when I look at the field, I can't tell where the doubles are because of how close the companion is. And the nice thing about the Nexus is you know that essentially the double star should be very close to the center of field as long as you did your alignment correctly. So it, it again, just adds to the efficiency of the session. I don't have to evaluate 40 stars in the field trying to see, you know, which one might be the double. Um, I just know it's pretty darn close to center. And, um, the, 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 
just plugging the list now, the the RASC double star list. Um, I feel like I'm getting to know Blake a lot more <laughs> just with the nuances of this list. And um, what I'm referring to is again using a 63 millimeter. It's it's pretty small aperture for the for that list, but I haven't come across anything yet that I haven't been able to split or identify. And um, where where I'm going with sort of getting to know Blake through the list is there's been a number of systems that I look at and I'm thinking this is kind of boring. It's two white stars that look the same, and pretty much every star on this list either has something really interesting visually um, or challenging. Or it's just uh, like a, a, a very interesting star that happens to be a double, like a Cepheid variable as well. And um, a number of the stars that I observed this week, again, I kind of look at it and at first glance, I was kind of ho-hum on the system, but I thought, no, there's there's got to be more here because Blake would not have put this on the list had it been, you know, sort of as plain Jane is what I think I'm observing right now. Mm-hmm. And so on those systems, I would spend a little more time using averted vision, using different magnifications. And in every single instance, I uncovered a third or a fourth star that was part of the system, uh, either super close or it was very faint. And uh, I've just had so much fun with that because it's it's sort of, uh, I don't know, like a little bit of a discovery tour. And you know, at, if you don't take a little more time on some of these systems, you might miss the actual gem that you're supposed to be seeing there. So I I highly encourage anybody who's into double star observing to check out this list. And if you want some added fun, try using a smaller aperture. Um, in the last episode, I mentioned, you know, Blake gives aperture recommendations for all of these double stars. And most of them are 90 millimeter to 100 millimeter. I've had no problem using the 63 millimeter on all of them. And in fact, there's a few that have recommendations of like 150 millimeters. uh, And I've been able to split those successfully. Um, One of them is the double double up in Lyra. The two pairs are pretty easy to split. Like they're huge. They're, you know, that's a visual double almost. And the, the challenge is then splitting each of those groupings. And the one that would be, I guess, on the right uh, is is quite challenging. It's fairly tight. The one on the left, I was able to split with the 63 millimeter just with direct vision. And it was pretty much there all of the time. The other one, though, I had to spend quite a few minutes just observing that uh, using fairly high magnification and and just waiting for those millisecond moments where the seeing just kind of steadies. And boom, I was able to split it, but, uh, certainly not easy. And it just made the, it made it a little funner for me because of the challenge. So I, I do recommend too, uh, just trying to use uh, maybe a little less aperture and, and see what you're able to observe with that list. Um, so that's been my week, Chris, and I know you've had a couple of your early morning sessions and such. So what were you able to get out and do? Yeah, I did. I think five sessions in the past three days. So evening, morning, or morning, evening, morning, evening, morning. So that's a, that was a lot of observing, 10 hours of sketching and a couple hours of just playing around. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, really trying to make up for, for lost ground from all, all the fires in the summer. Yeah, just some highlights. Uh, did an observation and a sketch of the... Uh, Flaming Star Nebula, uh, IC405 there by A. Uriga in uh, 
in Auriga and just up over uh, the Leaping Minnow and then sketched a couple nebula and and cluster below it all in one field, all in the five inch and uh, set it all up using the uh, multiple filter selector. So I can flip different filters in and out as, as I'm doing the observations, um, which really is, is a massive boost to, uh, to my observing anyway, using the filters. Um, so that was on the evening of the 17th. And also on the evening of the 17th, I, I drew a map of the uh, nebulosity in the Pleiades. So I spent a while kind of mapping out the nebula. I don't think I drew the stars so accurately, but uh, but I think I got the sort of the nebula down. I found like a big dark um, void um, passing through kind of the the bottom third of of the nebula. And yeah, it was kind of neat to see that. Um, got up, I think it was yesterday morning and did um, fairly extreme uh, observing. I, I did a sketch. This took about an hour. Uh, did a sketch of uh, the Horsehead Nebula in the five inch. So that's pretty tough sledding. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I, I wasn't sure if extreme meant like, you know, three days without food and <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, it's a lot of back and forth with the chart and, and getting it just like trying to pick up that nebula, like the nebula itself, I see four, three, four is pretty small in the, in the five inch with the wide field, but uh, try different powers, but 18 power was best. And like I said, I can flip the filter in and out super quick and, uh, and kind of eventually get it nailed down. But uh, you know, it's like an hour sitting or the better part of an hour sitting at the eyepiece just to, get the nebula good enough to warrant going in and grabbing the sketchbook anyway. So, uh, yeah. And I've observed it before on the five inch. I've just never observed it from here. Although I did observe four, three, four last year, I just couldn't get it. But, but what happened was when I got up yesterday morning, it was just so good. It was the, the clearest, best conditions that I've ever seen out here. And I thought I got to go for the horse. Because if I, if I can't see it this morning, I don't think I'll ever see it here. You know, I, I just, chances are I won't ever get a night that's this clear and this warm being only whatever it was minus one um, and totally still, uh, you know, with, with it that high up. So typically if, if uh, the belt of Orion is that high um, it's going to be pretty cold, uh, you know, maybe even into the minus twenties. And I don't think I would have seen it. You know, you got to be sitting comfortable, relatively warm and take like that hour at the eyepiece to, to really do it. So that's pretty tough if you're into the minus 20. So mm -hmm. I figured that was my shot. Hmm. Then after that, I've done a couple sketches of this already, I think three or four this fall. Um, but I, you know, what I'm doing is I keep coming back to some of the same targets and this one, I really feel like I finally got, which is, uh, this is, I think my best sketch so far, as far as accuracy, uh, is the uh, rosette. And I'm really, really proud of that, that sketch. I think to, to my eye being, I think, I think it's the fourth time I sketched it in the past six weeks. Um, but to my eye, that is exactly what it looks like. Um, it is it is really really close to what it looks like but that's a field sketch stars aren't round etc because i'm sketching under low light but uh 
yeah, really, really happy. Got kind of sort of these billowing clouds, a couple of the uh, lines that sort of cut through it and certain spots. And uh, yeah, I think that one is is the sketch that I'm happy with. Like these are all field sketches. Like I'm doing so much sketching that sort of, you know, I think it would be impossible to do all these as sort of good final copies inside. So yeah, it's a lot of fun doing that. The old white ink and pastel chalk on black paper. So that's the technique. Yeah, cool. And then uh, last night I was out, I did a sketch of the veil for warm up. It came out, it came out decent, it came out okay. Um, I don't think I'm, I'm not, I'm getting there. That that's like my fourth one of the veil to third or fourth one of the veil. Um, so that's coming along. And then I did one of um, this one's really tough, almost in the same league as the uh, horse said, which is the uh, cocoon nebula there at the end of that. Uh, I think it's B39 dark lane up in uh, Lacerda. Not sure if you've ever taken a look at that one, but that one is, is in the same league. Like you think you've got it and then you doubt yourself and you're back and forth with the charts, etc. It is, uh, yeah, it's not super easy. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I'll have to add that to the list. Yeah. Yeah. That one is, uh, yeah. Easy to see the dark lane. And then there's an open cluster that's, I don't know, maybe a degree and a half past where the cocoon is. So a lot of the time when you go and look and you follow, what you do is you find Messier 39, which is an open cluster. Uh, I think it's on the Cygnus Lacerda border. Anyway, I'm not sure which constellation it's in exactly. You find that and then you just keep panning um, whatever the direction is to, to B39. And then I think it's like south east. And then you find that lane and then it's easy. Like you, you run over where the cocoon is and then you hit that nebula or not, uh, not nebula, you hit the cluster. And it's easy to think that cluster is faint. And in, especially in like the four inch, I did a sketch of it last year in the four inch and for sure, excuse me, my first time on it. I thought that I, I had it, but it was just that a damn cluster. Um, I did get the nebula last year, but it is it is really really tough. But I I think I got it again last night the sketch. But uh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Uh, and then this morning did the Christmas tree cluster. Might have gotten like I put a dark spot in where the cone is. And uh, yeah, actually I was kind of surprised when I came in and I I was like, is that where it is? And then I was like looking and I'm like I I don't know. But uh, I did the sketch anyway. And then this is my new favorite object because I had not observed this before and it came out um, quite well. And that's the uh, Thor's helmet there down in, uh, yeah, I think it's on the, the Canis Major Puppis kind of region. Maybe not Puppis, but anyway, it's in Canis Major on the uh, eastern side. And that is really an amazing nebula because it, it scarcely showed up when I was sweeping towards it. And uh, and then I thought, oh, I think I have it. That's cool. I didn't think I'd be able to get it because the conditions were a little soft this morning. And then when I flipped, because I can flip in the O3 filter, I flipped that thing in and it just like goes up like four magnitudes. It's like crazy bright. 
And I thought, whoa, this is the brightest nebula that I've seen respond to an O3 that it will take power. So then I pulled my 40 out and put in the uh, 17 and did the sketch with the 17 for the simple fact that the 17 is by far the easiest eyepiece I own to sketch with. And so I, uh, yeah, that's what I did the sketch with. But I think it would have taken more power. I think easily, I don't know, maybe like 80, maybe 100 power it would have taken because there was so much detail there. But uh, I thought about doing that. I thought, I'm tired. I'm just kind of playing around this morning and it's my first observation of it. I'll, I'll come back to it again for sure. Um, I'd love to see it in a larger scope. So I'm excited for that one. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you and I were talking about Thor's helmet before pressing record on the other episode. And yeah, that sounds amazing. Like I, I love nebulas like that. Where you, you really can't see it without a filter, put in a filter mm. and all of a sudden you're just astonished at uh, the view. Yeah. And I mean, it really shows. So in, in a similar, but perhaps even more dramatic way as, as the, um, like the veil, if people are familiar with flipping a filter in with the veil and, mm -hmm. and seeing how, how it kind of electrifies it almost, um, this is in that category for sure. I'll, and, and I'm, I was surprised at that because, and I think you even recalled this because I was pretty sure that we one winter night had gone looking for that. You and I, I thought I, we did. Yeah, yeah. I think we did. And I don't think we saw it or we're like, oh, maybe it's there and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, you've, yeah, you've almost got to have it uh, set up so that you find the field and then put the filter on and then you can, you can really see it. So like almost in a way with the multiple filter selector, worst name ever for a device, for an amazing device. Um, that is like, it's like a real weapon of choice when you're, when you're doing this type of observing, it's, uh, yeah, it's super cool. So yeah, lots of observing, most of it at low power using just my 40, 32 and 17. Although I did have the 12 and a half going on the, I did use that for the cocoon actually. Um, and yeah, lots of H beta O3 type stuff. Surprisingly though, you know, what I'm finding with some of these targets is, is that, um, for some, I, I have these new generation filters that I bought last year that were not inexpensive. And I find that they are really tuned for the objects much more than previous filters I had. And uh, so I'm going to say that I, I almost am going to have to walk back my recommendation on a UHC being a more general filter that I would recommend first. I think right now I'm almost tiptoeing towards the O3 I find like the O3 is like the new UHC where I find like with many targets, the O3 is kind of showing them. And, but the UHC is much more specific on targets that work well with these new uh, work well with UHC. Um, you know, you can use it and, and it really enhances them. It's, it's a really, really great view, but with the, uh, with the targets that maybe don't work as well with UHC or O3 targets, like I was looking at, uh, like this target with the uh, with the UHC, and and you couldn't see it. In fact, it was same as no filter, or maybe even worse than no filter. So uh, yeah, I, I think if people are buying new filters, keep keep that in mind. In, in my opinion, anyway, the the new generation of UHCs are better for the intended targets, not as good as as generalized filters. So maybe have a broadband more broadband filter in your uh, kit as well now. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the reasons too why I typically don't use a UHC is I just don't find it really enhances things when I'm under a dark sky. No, 
Um, but I have had, and I'm glad you mentioned the veil. Like uh, the first time I ever used it, the reason I got an O3 was to see the veil because I mm -hmm. tried multiple times and I, you know, there was kind of hints of the wispiness, but I never really got the view that everybody told me I would get. And then when I put in the O3, I couldn't believe it. And and your words, I think, are beautiful. And when you said it electrifies it, because that's yeah. essentially what happens. It's like yeah. somebody flicked the power flicked switch, the switch on yeah. and like all of a sudden, yeah. boom, like it's there and you can yeah. see the tendrils and wispiness and dark, like it's just incredible. And uh, I'm very excited to try uh, uh, Thor's helmet uh, just to see, you know, the impacts of the O3 there now. Yeah. For sure. Uh, Patreon draw reminder. What are what are we doing, Shane? We're going to have a Patreon draw. How do people get entered? Yeah, so uh, we're going to give away a few RASC uh, 2024 Observer calendars. And what we're going to do is throw all of the Patreon supporters' names into a hat and uh, do a few random draws to see who will get uh, the calendar. And then we'll yep. mail them out. So if, uh, if you're a supporter, you're already... Uh, in the competition Entered. or in yep. the mix. Oh, go ahead. Yep. You're already in. Yep. And then, um, if you're not a supporter, you still have time to become one and get your name entered into the contest. Yeah. It's just the easiest way to do it. Um, simply because we uh, already have contact details and stuff like that. And, uh, also it's, uh, a way, I think Shane, you, you and I were chatting, you mentioned a way for us to, um, recognize and give back to those who, uh, who had supported us and uh yeah several of our patreon supporters have uh have even sent us other very interesting things more to come on that in a future show all right um so gene who is a patreon supporter and you don't have to be a patreon supporter to make a show suggestion and that's all good but uh, gene is a patreon supporter and he sent sent us a show idea alt azimuth versus equatorial mounts so uh my voice is not so good shane do you want to read this short email and then we'll hop yep. into it sure so gene says i know you all like lighter simpler things in general i'd love to hear your thoughts on an eq mount for visual use i am buying a 140 millimeter refractor uh, that i'll have early next year uh, i've got a nice tripod and i'm looking for a mount uh, the Lost Mandy GM8 keeps coming up. It sort of looks like a whole new skill to learn and I'll never ever do photography, but it looks like it would be fun and help me learn how the sky moves better. I would love to hear a podcast and your thoughts there. Thank you. Hope all is well. Love your show, Gene. So thank you, Gene. I think this is a good topic, Chris. We've talked about these mounts, I think many, many times, but mm -hmm. always in isolation. <laughs> you know, we talk about alt as a lot because that's what we use primarily yep. and we've sort of referenced eq mounts or equatorial mounts on occasion but i think it's good to focus an entire show on kind of the nuances between these two and what we like about both and maybe what we don't like if there's anything i don't know yeah now as far as a recommendation for gene uh goes i i think the laws mini gm8 is a great mount. I think there's lots of really good equatorial mounts. Uh, keeping in mind that 140 millimeter refractor is going to be what in like that 13 to 16 pound range once you get the rings and everything on. Is that fair? Yeah, maybe even a little bit more. Might even be pushing closer to 20. 20, yeah. So it's not a lightweight scope. And um, if it's if it's a triplet, might maybe even more. Um, yeah, it all depends. Yeah. 
So uh, nice aperture size. So uh, typically the equatorial mounts are going to handle that weight a little bit better, although there's more and more uh, Alta Zenith mounts out there these days that can do that. Um, for me, for my money, just sort of spoiler alert, and what I would recommend is is to get uh, an Alta Zenith mount. Um, if, if you've been using Alta Zenith already and that's what you've been enjoying, um, I would uh, continue in that direction um, just to make life uh, simpler and easier. And you can buy Alta Zenith tracking mounts too. A um, number of reasons for that Alta Zenith mounts are going to be, it's going to be lighter. It's going to be easier to use if that's what you've been using already. There won't be any learning curve. And uh, yeah, I, I always like the ability just to decide what I want to look at, point the telescope there. It's hard enough to find this stuff if that's what we're doing. Um, that's how I like to observe. So um, that just makes that process, uh, you know, it, it is the process that I've learned. It sounds like it's the process maybe you learned as well to genes. So my recommendation would be uh, to try to find a, an Alta Zenith mount. I, I think you can actually convert the GM8 in, into Alta Zenith now too, if you buy a package, but I'm not sure if I would recommend that. But uh, Shane, just sort of right off the hop, do you have a recommendation for a gene before we kind of hop into all the differences here? Yeah, not not knowing the tripod, he says he has a nice tripod. So assuming it's a fairly robust one, um, uh, I think yeah, Alt As is my per preferred mount for sure. It's the most intuitive, easiest mm. to use mount um, with a one forty millimeter refractor. Um, assuming again that it's maybe in that twenty plus pound range, mm. you know, you're starting to get into a a unique territory of alt as mounts. There's not a lot out there for big refractors like that. You're probably looking, I don't know, at the maybe the AZ8 from Los Mandy, potentially. There is the uh, Rowan, Rowan mounts. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple versions of those. And then uh, disc mounts. Uh, they're probably the disc mounts. Very six. popular, yeah. Yeah, very popular. None of these are inexpensive, uh, but you know, you're you're probably needing something to that heft. Maybe the Stellar View M2C, but that one I think might be over or undermounting a, a 140. So, um, you know, there's those options. I guess even the one you have, um, the what is that, the AZ6 that converts into an AZ mount? Oh, the AZ EQ6. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that's what I end up purchasing. You know, kind of going through the same conundrum because it it uh, can work in both modes. You can run it in both um, equatorial or alta zenith, and uh, I just I like that fact um, because if I ever did, there, there's a small part of me that would like to do planetary imaging. Um, you can do planetary imaging on a tracking uh, alta zenith mount, but uh, I was talking with Mark Radici, and and he has that same mount that I bought and and does some of that i thought oh that's something i might want to do someday and i also want tracking for my sketching um for sure so uh so that's why i went with that particular mount versus some of these other ones if you don't have any intention of doing that kind of stuff even then uh, i think like the dm6 uh, by disc mounts i think that is going to be your i think that's going to be a really big front runner for eugene i i've I think I've used one once before and uh, it, I think that's going to perhaps be the golden ticket. There are some other newer Alta Zenith mounts out there too. You can uh, read about some of them aren't badly priced. 
uh, the DM6 is is rather expensive, but I think you're you're going to get uh, what you're looking for there on a telescope. You can just point. It has a lot of deadening to it, so it's very solid. And I think that's where I want to leap to now, Shane, is that uh, regardless of whether you're talking equatorial or alt azimuth mounts, um, do not undermount your telescopes. That is shaky ground. <laughs> Yeah, I'm particularly sensitive to any vibration at the eyepiece. It it drives me crazy. So, I when I'm mounting a telescope, I always, uh, I shouldn't say always, but pretty much my whole collection right now, uh, all of my telescopes are way, I guess, overmounted would be the right word. Meaning the mount has far more capacity than what I'm putting on it, uh, and that ensures a real stable platform and allows me to do some real high magnification observing with manual tracking uh, without really much issue. So, Shane, can you just give us a quick rundown on what an equatorial mount is and what an altazimuth mount is? Kind of what are the differences? Yeah, I, I think the biggest difference is like, uh, well, in all that, you just set it up, up, down, left, right, and away you go. There's no alignment. There's no nothing. You don't even have to level the thing if you don't want to. Yeah. Um, now, an equatorial mount, um, the way it works is you align it to the rotation of the Earth's axis, essentially. Yeah. So once that is done, then you're really you know, especially for tracking purposes, you're really only having one movement, uh, on the mount, um, you know, the right ascension and that tracks your object then for in, into perpetuity and, uh, is more desirable too, for people doing long exposure photography. Um, so that's probably the biggest difference. And then the movements of an EQ mount get a little weird. It's no mm -hmm. longer up, down, left, right. Um, and that's probably where, um, the biggest challenge is once you get used to the movements of an EQ mount, it doesn't seem so unnatural, but there's certainly a learning curve or an adjustment that needs to take place, uh, just to get used to that function. Uh, would you, would you agree with that, Chris? Yeah, I, I would. I've used equatorials a handful of times just with other people's and uh, it's not something that, uh, I've used enough and it always feels like I just want to point the telescope here and I can't, I have to kind of go through this. I, like this big sweep around. And then as well, um, one of the things that really struck me, I, I had a friend that I observed with, they had a 10 inch F5 on an equipoise, like a big EQ6. And it, it was great. It was nice to have the big scope. Um, but wow, did you ever want that to be a Dobsonian? Because uh, we'd, we'd get it set up. We were, one night we were watching... Um, the moon was passing in front of the Pleiades and there's this big Pleiades occultation. So we went out to our site and set this telescope up and it, it was really frustrating because the eyepiece ended up in this really difficult position. We had to end up messing around to get it into a position we could even use. And uh, after that, I was like, huh. it was neat. It was great that it tracked because we could use high power and that was kind of fun, but the awkwardness of it, like, there, I think towards the end, I could no longer reach the eyepiece myself. I'm not a super tall person, but it was just like, yeah, well, I'm done looking because I, I can no longer reach the eyepiece, you know? And um, so that occurred. And uh, yeah, but many uh, modern telescopes now, the entry level ones and, and even getting up there, um, 
that are coming as as go-to scopes which are popular most of these are aldas i think and and they just come as as complete systems whereas um most not all but but the majority of these equatorial mounts you're you're buying the mount and then buying your telescope kind of separate kind of piecing it together though they do make some that are targeted at astro imagers that uh, that come as complete packages i think yeah yeah i think that's becoming somewhat common too and the altas tracking mounts um they they can they can work for planetary imaging and and the electronically assisted astronomy or the eaa um as those require like shorter exposures 5 to 15 seconds um, but if you go too long, you end up with rotated star fields. And so you can't really use use them for uh, long exposures. You know, I'm sure somebody would say you, you can, but you do some fancy stuff. Um, but like in general, if you're going in that direction, you might as well just go with the equatorial from the start, I think. Eh? Yeah, yeah, I would think so too. Um, there are, I think there are some strategies like you can do like shorter exposures and do a lot more stacking to overcome some of those weaknesses. But, um, equatorial mounts, I think are favored for a lot of astrophotographers. I like what you said about getting it flat. Like you really need to get the tripod leveled for the equatorial mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you need to make sure that things are set up very precisely. And I was, uh, initially I didn't think that much of just going with another mount an equatorial mount for my observatory but uh, having never really used one before and then setting up like all the things and it turned out this was a really wise decision because it's been a heck of a lot more complicated doing some of this stuff than i could have imagined um i've always been really happy that we uh we went with the uh eldas because um my builder was saying well uh, this plate is not going to stay level. It's going to shift every year and, you know, we can shim it or we can do all this fancy stuff, but it's going to end up off a degree or two. Um, you know, every year it's going to shift one way, it will shift the other. And I, you know, he said, you won't be able to really see the difference, but he said, uh, you know, for something like, like a telescope mount like this, like for sure, it's going to throw it off. And I said, well, my mount should be fine because I'm just going to run it in Alta Zemuth, what's called Alta Zemuth mode. So we don't need to worry as, as much about that. It, it should be fine for tracking purposes that, uh, that I want to do anyway. Yeah. Yeah. For, for sketching, probably. Okay. If you were to track for long periods of time, I think that would, uh, throw it off a little bit, but, um, it, like anytime you use say digital setting circles or tracking, regardless of mount, uh, yeah. leveling increases accuracy for sure. Yeah. And I mean, it is level. It is level right now, but it will, it will change with time. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe we have to shim it or, or whatever, but I'm not that worried about it because right now I just do all manual and, uh, I kind of, in a way, kind of more or less plan to do the same with the AZEQ, uh, six so i'm just gonna mm -hmm. kind of go and point it and then flip on the tracking just let it do its thing and then kind of slow-mo uh you know pan over if i if i need to kind of pan around a bit i'll just use the the hand paddle kind of like what i've been doing with my uh uh azeq or azeg or gti azgti gti z or whatever it's called yeah mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. let's see yeah you don't need to do that equatorial dance so if you're sweeping along the horizon um you know uh i was listening to uh, don mccolt he he was uh, somebody who was on our show but when he was on the observer's notebook uh, in 2018 i listened to this old episode um he was talking about 
uh, sweeping and and I was prepping for the show and he was talking about hunting for comets using an equatorial and he said oh you, you get used to it but when you're sweeping for comets you end up really high on, on one side and then low on the other so your sweeps end up being these um diagonals he said again like you get used to it you get accustomed to it but uh but yeah you can't just sort of sweep back and forth across the horizon and so if Gene or somebody else is is used to that sort of uh, ability to just go back and forth when you're trying to find something, uh, you're in for, a, you know, a, a bit of learning there. And I think uh, for me personally, I would find that frustrating. Like, I always want to just be able to throw the uh, clutches and then just, especially if I just want to observe, I don't know, if, if the moon is nearby saturn kind of sort of like it was last night, um, I'm observing the moon now, I want to go and observe saturn. I don't want to have to kind of go through like this weird kind of sweep. And then I think if it was me, I'd, I'd end up using the go-to to go to Saturn from the moon, which to me um, is, you know, just not going it, to, it, it's just not the way I want to observe. I've tried this before. Um, I did buy a mount that would do that. I thought it wouldn't interfere with my observing that much. And I found it hugely impactful, Shane. I didn't like to observe that way for whatever reason. That's just me. Mm -hmm. Um, one other thing too, about an equatorial mount that, um, you know, I think some observers new to equatorial mounts may miss is that you need a rotating, well, I don't know if you need it, but having a rotating focuser becomes probably more important because that mm. telescope is doing all sorts of gymnastics as you're moving around and you might have it all lined up for the perfect angle to your eye. Uh, for one object, move to another object, and now your eyepiece is pointing at the ground or something like that. So you can overcome that with a rotating focuser. With a refractor too, you can just loosen the, the diagonal and change the yep. angle of the eyepiece, which um, works just fine. But that's one thing to consider. Um, some, that's a really good point. Some other things about EQ mounts though that I, I think are superior to alt-as mounts or can be... Um, uh, is is the uh, setting circles um, like the Los Mandy mounts have really really good setting circles built in, and they're fairly simple to use. I won't get into the mechanics. It's probably better to to watch like a video on it or or just read the steps uh, if you're interested. But calibrating uh, manual setting circles doesn't take very much for your observing session, and then once they're calibrated. Um, you can locate objects very quickly and easily using those setting circles. And what it does is it overcomes that circus that you were talking about of like the kind of the non-intuitive movements of an EQ mount don't matter anymore because you just line up the numbers on the setting circles and you'll have your object in the field of view. Yeah. Uh, conversely, you could use digital setting circles like I'm using now and it, it accomplishes the same feat. And then you don't have to worry about like, oh, do I move this? this direction. Oh, no, no, I got to move that axis first. <laughs> so, um, you can overcome some of those movement issues that way. Um, and EQ mounts in general, I think are, are, or have a greater capacity for weight. They're able to handle more telescope weight, assuming you're using counterweights and, and you've got all that, uh, balanced properly, which yeah. is another, uh, nice thing. I thought of another, because this is something I did work through and I spent a long time thinking through different things that maybe um, other people haven't considered because in the construction of my observatory, when you build an observatory, you want to have the walls high enough that they block the wind, but you don't want to have them um, any higher than that. 
any higher than necessary. You want to block the wind, block any local lights, and uh, but you want them low enough to reveal as much of the sky and horizons as possible. And I think when I was doing that, I worked out that if I had gone equatorial, you end up either needing to um, lower the mount in the observatory, thus decreasing the visible amount of horizon that you have, or raising the walls. It's not much. I think it ends up being like a, like a couple inches or something like that, maybe three inches in my case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, huh, this creates some complexity because uh, when we were building it, I wanted to have like nice round numbers um, for my builder to keep in mind because we weren't using a plan. <laughs> and, and um, you know, I suppose if you were and you weren't that concerned about the cost of wood and and such, but we had worked out that it was going to be most affordable if we went with six foot high walls. But there was a significant cost increase if we increased the wall height um, by three or four inches. It was going to increase like the whole cost of the observatory, perhaps as much as like a couple thousand dollars, maybe just because of there's like these all these knock on effects, okay, from nails to paint to you know, the type of wood we were going to use, like it was like this crazy knock-on effect. And then the other thing was, as we built and designed it, we end up inadvertently having to go about an inch and a half or an inch and three quarters higher, just because we put um, an extra set of two by fours at the top. So it didn't really have an appreciable impact to the cost. But if we had gone up another three or four inches, we then would have gone up another two inches. So my horizons end up getting a little bit smaller, but it didn't really matter. But if we were talking walls that are now six inches higher, I'm getting, I feel like I'm a little bit more constrained in, into what I can see. So there, there was these sort of other knock-on effects if, uh, if people are ever even ever considering getting an observatory. And I think it is a consideration if you're, if you're getting into this, this level of telescope, like 140 millimeter refractor and this level of mount. Yeah, yeah, interesting points. Um, I do have uh, sort of a GM8. It's a, a GM9 by Los Mandy. Uh, you know, listeners have heard me talk about this in the past. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's not a super common mount. It was made for Celestron by Los Mandy for their um, nine and a quarter inch uh, SCT. And I don't know how many were made, but uh, you can find the odd one uh, for sale. And there's some conflicting reports out there about you know, where does this, like, where does the GM nine kind of stack up against the GM 11 and the GM eight, which is what uh, are the current offerings. And, um, uh, there's been some reports that the GM nine kind of lives in between both of them, that some of the bearings are larger than the eight, but not quite the same size as the 11. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then reports that say it's basically the exact same as the eight, but regardless, uh, it's a fantastic mount and it, some of the setup is actually pretty simple, especially if you're a visual observer. Um, you know, you set the declination for your location and you set that once and you never have to adjust it again. And then basically when I'm setting it up, I just take a compass and make sure it's pointed north. And as long as it's pointed north, I know that I'm probably pretty darn close to Polaris. And that's really what you have to do with an EQ mount is align it to Polaris if you're in the northern hemisphere. Um And once you have that, your mount is ready to go. Um, But there's a lot of nights, again, being I'm a visual guy, uh, I just have it pointed north. And if Polaris is not quite centered or maybe not even visible through a polar scope, I know I'm probably going to be okay for the night. 
Um, balance is still important, but uh, that mount can haul uh, an awful lot of telescope. And, you know, right now my largest telescope is a four inch F8. Um, I am considering a larger telescope, like maybe a six inch refractor or something around that range. Mm-hmm. My, my end play here is likely to use that lost Mandy mount for my bigger refractors. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things too, that I really like about the lost Mandy mounts is that they're compatible with the Nexus digital setting circles. So I can buy encoders, put it on that mount and use the computer that I'll, that I already have on my M2C mount, uh, and just switch it over to the, uh, the lost Mandy. Um, and then the lost Mandy also has tracking and, and you can set the tracking. Uh, it's very customizable for different types of objects that you might be observing. So mm-hmm. that's maybe another factor to consider too, is that it is quite versatile in the tracking area. Um, and, and that can be helpful. Yeah. Cool. Um, a couple more things, counterweights, um, with the Elta Zenith, even with mine, like apparently you can put a ton of weight on it and not use counterweights. Whereas mm-hmm. with Equatorial, you're absolutely, you need to make sure that those counterweights are, you know, properly set up. Like again, it, it boils down to the Alta Zenith just being easier. And the, because of that, um, like, for example, like I'm running my five inch on, I guess my Lapidus probably weighs maybe seven or seven pounds or so, maybe it's plus or minus. I can't remember what it is. Somebody can look it up, but mine is customized. So it's a little bit heavier. But uh, I can run up to 16, 18 pounds on my no problem. Like I had it all fitted out with the multiple filter selector, giant two inch, uh, three pound eyepiece. So that's like a four or five pound uh, bit hanging off the end of end of the scope. The scope is eight, nine pounds. So that's 13. My rings are four. So that's 17. Put the finer. And yeah, actually, I ran 20 pounds on that the other night. I was getting to the limit, but keep in mind, this is an Altaz on a wooden tripod that has broom handles on it that uh, Rudy had made up. And, uh, you know, I'm running close to 20 pounds on on my Altaz. And it's just really cool to be able just to walk out with the scope and put it up and not have to futz with, uh, with a mount of any sort. It's just w- one trip mount, tripod, next trip, telescope, your rings, and then telescope and whatever else you're, you're going to observe with it is like a very slick and simple observing process with uh with what i got going and shane to me i think that means a lot and i think that for us that's why the altaz wins out is that it's just easier to use unless you're going to really set up something big and more permanent and even then i went with the altaz again yeah you can't in my opinion you can't beat an altaz for grab and go uh and quick setups it's just lighter and easier to maneuver. Um, but you know, an EQ mount works great and it certainly is a a valid option. Um, and if you really are looking to, to have some kind of weighty telescopes, um, you know, it's probably one of the more economical options too, because some of those, um, heavy duty alt as mounts that we mentioned earlier, like they are not cheap. (laughs) They're quite a few dollars. So, you know, you have to factor that in a little bit too, but definitely setting up an alt as, or sorry, setting up the EQ way more involved. I, yep. I have to make multiple trips. The mount itself is quite heavy. Then, then the counterweight, um, you know, and then just getting it all aligned certainly adds to it all. Yep. 
Anything uh, else to add to this episode, Gene? No, Chris, that's everything. Uh, that's it for me too. We're big fans of the Aldaz here. Um, Equatorials certainly have their place. I think, I think I got to say this, Shane, I think the Equatorials look cooler. <laughs> well, there certainly are that more iconic astronomy look, right? You know, yeah. when, you, when you see the, uh, the images on a, in a magazine. Yeah. Uh, but for my money, um, yeah, originally I was totally on board with getting an equatorial and then, um, the little bit of challenge with the use, the little bit of increase in the weight, but then it was for me anyway, the, these, uh, you know, three, three or four inch higher wells, that was going to be a significant cost increase and, and, uh, possible increased reduction in my horizons. I was out, you know, cause you know, you want to be able to look at, you know, certain things in, in certain directions and not uh, have the telescope, uh, uh, missing that comet or or whatever it is so yeah all right with that um i'll give you our concluding message just a reminder for our patreon calendar draw all you need to do is be a patreon supporter to be placed in our draw thanks to everybody for listening you can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com uh, send us your show ideas like gene did send us your observations and send us your questions we're always happy to give you our opinions and our opinions are free and they are worth every penny. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>